All right. Welcome, everybody. So our last episode, we um, talked about Abraham and the three men who were the Lord and the burning bush where God announced that he is the same God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So we talked about the pillar of cloud and fire and how it landed on the ground in a clump of bushes. So to start today's episode, I'm going to ask Barry, what happens to the Exodus UFO, the pillar of cloud and fire, after the parting of the Red Sea. Can you tell us more about that? Yes. Before I get to that, um, I want to explain that in the Abraham story, we have ETs that appear very human, and they appear as three persons talking to Abraham and claiming divine authority. And then at the burning bush, the voice claims the same divine authority in the name of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but we don't see a human form there. We have a burning bush, but I suspect it's the spaceship, the pillar cloud, and the fire that we finally see as we approach the Red Sea later. Um, I think it's important that people listening understand that we are in a somewhat different situation in regard to UFOs than we were just a a couple of months ago. Uh, People can Google uh, the New York Times UFOs 2020 to find a July article by Ralph Blumenthal and Leslie Kane. The title is, Do We Believe in UFOs? And that's the wrong question. Late in the article, they talk about the fact that in talking to people with uh, top security clearances about the UFO situation in the Pentagon, they were shown and told that the government has a program for what they call crash retrievals of AAVs, or Advanced Aerospace Mm -hmm. Vehicles, which means they had got in their possession crashed UFOs. So the issue is not, do we believe in UFOs anymore? They've got the hardware. And furthermore, I think we should suppose that the government has lied to us for a long time about this. For instance, the crash at Roswell in 1947 may have been uh, one of the earliest crash retrievals. And so the government has lied for over 70 years. Uh, I feel certain that this is a fact. And Mm -hmm. so... We in the religion field have been kept from understanding that we've got some type of advanced reality that's flying in our skies but not landing on the White House lawn and establishing open contact like we think they should, nor have they landed somewhere out in the desert and taken on board some of our advanced scientists like in the movie Close Encounters of the Third Kind to fly them off to their planet to show our scientists how real science works or whatever. That's not Mm -hmm. what's going on. Instead, we have beings that are flying in our skies. Uh, Our Navy Navy jet planes are chasing them without much success. And furthermore, now and then, UFOs will hover over our missile silos and knock out the computer systems uh, in the silos as if they were shaking their fingers, don't be bad children, to the people who hold these weapons in their power. So Mm -hmm. we've got um, a UFO reality that is now, I think, admitted to be there, even by the New York Times, which has been very reluctant to deal with UFOs in the past. 
So we need to approach the Bible with the view that we have a UFO reality there now, which probably has the power to do the kind of things that we read about in the Exodus story. And so this is not just wild guessing, okay? Uh, mm-hmm. I believe that the power is there in the technology that our government is hiding from us. And the purpose of the beings that are flying this technology, uh, I'm not sure that the government knows what it is, but they may. And furthermore, the government may worry that releasing this UFO information not only would be a problem for keeping technological secrets, but I think we would have a religious change in values very quickly, and the government leaders may think that this would be uh, a dangerous thing that they couldn't control once they were let loose. So I think this is the backdrop for looking at uh, today's lessons from the Bible. Uh, The first thing that I want to talk about is after the Jewish people were uh, through the Red Sea and the Egyptian uh, chariot leaders were drowned, the Jews find themselves out in the wilderness where there's no food, no water, no civilization. How are they going to survive? And so very quickly, Jewish people start complaining that they would have been better off (coughs) being back in Egypt by the flesh pots uh, and not starving to death out in the wilderness. Here's Exodus chapter 16, verses 9 up to 12. And Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your murmurings. And as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. That would be the pillar of cloud. And the Mm -hmm. Lord said to Moses, I've heard the murmurings of the people of Israel. Say to them, At twilight you shall eat flesh, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. And in the morning, a funny flake-like thing came down from the sky, and melded with the dew and formed into what they called manna. Now, manna was a kind of a bread, uh, but mm-hmm. the word manna in Hebrew means what is it <laughs> because they've never oh. seen anything like it. But what we have going on here is that the spaceship, the pillar cloud, is dropping some type of food from the sky which sustains Israel now uh, for the next 40 years. So they have a food supply here in the wilderness. And as I think I said last time, the wilderness is kind of a laboratory. It is a Mm. pure place because uh, there are no other tribes or uh, people in it. So the pillar of cloud and the ETs that are in charge uh, are free to uh, deal with the people of Israel in a way that isn't interfered with by other nations. Once they've got the food supply, they also notice they have no water. So in chapter 17 of Exodus, beginning at verse 5, people are complaining that they have no water. And then Moses takes the rod that was kind of the symbol of his power and whacks a rock and water pours forth from the rock. Um, How this happened, I don't know. I'm just saying that that's the story in the Bible. And then we get to Mount Sinai, and uh, in chapter 19 of Exodus, these are words that I find interesting. God says to Moses, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, 
how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my own possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. So what we have not seen before is basically the purpose that God or the angels or the ETs, whichever reality you prefer to think, uh, is going on here. The purpose is they've selected the Jewish people to uh, be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, a kind of an example uh, to all the people on the earth because the voice says, all the earth is mine. So although the Jewish people are chosen for this example of priests, a holy nation, uh, it's meant for all people on earth to see that this is going on. Now, this is something that both Eric von Daniken complained about in his book, Chariots of the Gods. It's also something that Bishop uh, Spong complained about, that it was unfair that God would... Uh, kill off the Egyptians and select the Jews to be chosen people. So the whole idea of chosen people doesn't fit in very well with our modern views of political correctness, but nevertheless, mm-hmm. that's what the Bible says. I think we need to look at the chosen people concept almost in terms of a classroom. The earth is God's classroom, and God selects one student to go to the blackboard. Did you in math class ever have your teacher select people to go to the blackboard? Yes. And were you ever chosen? Yes. Uh, at times, but not every time. <laughs> not every time, okay. Did you feel that the teacher had some pets that he or she preferred to send to the board or not? Yes, for sure. For sure there were chosen ones. And you didn't see it as a sin on the part of the teacher to have a chosen person to go to the blackboard, but rather there was a purpose here to illustrate the problem. What is the square root of 3,521 or something like that? And please Mm -hmm. work it out on the board, right. Um, So we shouldn't see the chosen people concept as some kind of a moral perversion on God's part, uh, unless you think the teacher is doing the same thing in the classroom. Uh, are morally perverted for picking out someone. At the same time, we should notice that uh, emotional feelings can be brought about uh, in the classroom situation where the teacher has a pet. Uh, And it is a mixed blessing for the pet. On the one hand, the pet is glad to have the teacher's strong approval and show that off in the room, but also Mm -hmm. the the student is going to find a lot of resentment coming from the other students are not the teacher's pet. And so the Jews have been in exactly that position for the last uh, two to 3,000 years. That is, to advertise that they are chosen people has just brought a lot of uh, condemnation down on them by the Gentile world, and it hasn't been fun, I know that. And the ovens in Germany in World War II are the latest kind of atrocity that they've had to put up with being in the chosen position. But in any case, Mm -hmm. um, when we move on in Chapter 19, 
uh, God says to Moses, Lo, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the peoples may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. Now, the word thick cloud, I think, here is just another way of describing the pillar of cloud and the fire. Why the, the words have been changed to thick cloud from uh, pillar of cloud, I don't know. Then Moses told the words of, of the people to the Lord, and the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down upon Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people, and you shall see set bounds for the people round about, saying, Take heed that you do not go up into the mountain or touch it, the border of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. Now, this doesn't sound like God loves me. Um, that sounds like a very mean God. What's going on here? Uh, I would say that what's going on is kind of divine theater or E.T. theater, which way you want to go with mm. it. But in any case, there is an attempt to establish a distance between God and the idea of God and the rest of humanity so that uh, the base of the mountain is as far as the ordinary people of Israel were allowed to come. And if they went up on the mountain, which is God's space or God's territory, they were to be killed. Um, this is a severe way of teaching that God is not touchable, not reachable, mm -hmm. or more holy than we are. And also the fact that God is in the thick cloud uh, raises issues in terms of is God in a thick cloud or is the thick cloud serving a theatrical purpose? And that's what I think is going on. Because the basic idea that's going to come out of the Mount Sinai experience is that God is distant from us but watching over us and so we need to obey even though he is invisible. Now the idea that God's invisible uh, is, should not be that hard for us to understand because the essence of who Michaela is is invisible. You know, you're mm -hmm. you're listening to me now and responding, but you your inner self has choices about how to respond and I can't see what those inner choices are. I can only see what you end up saying and hearing. Mm -hmm. And so uh, God of the Bible, in a sense, the essence of God is invisible. It's part of what's being taught here by what I call divine theater or E.T. theater. And so mm -hmm. it's uh, rather gruesome in some ways <laughs> that God is this vicious, but there you are. So on the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud upon the mountain, and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. And Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke, because the Lord descended upon it in fire, which sounds like the pillar of cloud and fire to me. And the smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain quaked greatly. Now, most of the time, there was no earthquake when the pillar of cloud was leading the way, nor was there an earthquake at the parting of the Red Sea. 
So this is what I call divine theater, uh, a demonstration of power. And uh, people were afraid, and the response was, Moses, you go ahead and meet with God. We'll stay down here. Uh, keep us out of it. Thank you. And so that also meant that they were going to have to establish a whole system of priesthood to act as mediators between the invisible God and the invisible power God that can hurt them if they got too close uh, in their real life. And so now when all the people perceived the thunderings and lightnings and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood afar off and said to Moses, You speak to us, and we will hear, but let not God speak to us, lest we die. And Moses... That's intense. Yes, it is. And Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to prove you, and that you, that the fear of him may be before your eyes, that you may not sin. So the idea of holiness is very much at stake here, and that humans are not holy by nature is something that has to be achieved. And, and most humans cannot achieve it on their own, so there has to be forgiveness or sacrifices made in order to clean up the mess that we humans are. And so that leads to the establishment of the priesthood uh, and the building of the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant contained the Ten Commandments, uh, in, in the stones, the tablets of the Ten Commandments were written on, as well as a loaf of bread, of unleavened bread, as a reminder of, of what happened when they had to leave Egypt on Passover night, taking unleavened bread with them. And that's why uh, when modern Jewish people celebrate the Passover, uh, they can't have any leaven in their house, uh, nothing that uh, involves yeast or alcohol or anything like that. I had a rabbi friend who every Passover would sell me all of the leavened articles that he had in his house, the bread or uh, wine or whatever it was. And basically I would pay him money. He would give me a list of what I had bought. And then when Passover was over, um, he would buy the stuff back from me and give me my money back. Oh my gosh, that's yeah. so crazy. Yes, so this this um, leads to the issue of the laws that they received at Mount Sinai, and these laws are contained pretty much, some in, some in Exodus, others in Leviticus. Leviticus is named after the tribe of Levi. Uh, the Jewish people had 12 tribes. The 12 tribes were named after the 12 sons of Jacob, so each son had his own tribe. And Levi, the tribe of Levi, was designated to be the tribe of priests. So they acted as priests for the other 11 tribes. And so you couldn't be a priest unless you were born into the tribe of Levi. And furthermore, they had stricter rules for the priests than they had for the common people. Uh, the priests could only marry a virgin woman. They couldn't marry a widow. They couldn't marry a divorcee. They couldn't marry a prostitute. So there were special rules for the priests. Uh, and then also they built the tabernacle, which was basically 
uh, a worship space, a worship house. The house uh, contained the tabern- the uh, Ark of the Covenant. Of course, Raiders of the Lost Ark um, was a very famous movie, which uh, contained some truth about the Ark being dangerous, dangerous to look at. Uh, there is some notes in in Leviticus that say that when the uh, tabernacle was built, uh, each member of the tribe of Levi was assigned a job to move the tabernacle when it was taken down and moved to a new location. And the people were warned that no priest should look at parts of the temple or parts of the uh, tabernacle that were not his, like somebody was supposed to pick up the tent poles, somebody else was supposed to pick up the uh, pieces in the ground that that held them in place. if you looked at the wrong thing, you might might die. So there was, you know, um, this idea of holiness and the dangerousness of being near God and working in the tabernacle, the house of God. <clears throat> we don't get any of that in modern modern Christianity or Judaism, I don't think. So we've lost the sense of God's danger, but it was very much part of the Exodus process. Um, the the priests had very attractive garments. So, you know, most modern priests and ministers and rabbis wear, you know, clothing that may set them apart. And uh, the priests, of, the Jewish priests, were had very careful instructions of what the garments would look like. I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, kosher food because it was uh, part of what made the Jews uh, an identity or their identity as a special people that we notice to this day. There were rules about what type of meat they could eat. Jews could eat only meat from animals that chewed the blood and had cloven feet. So Highly specific. Yes. So goats and sheep and cows had cloven feet and they chewed the cud. Pigs have cloven feet, but they do not chew the cud, so they they were forbidden to be eaten. Horses, donkeys, camels do not have cloven feet, so they are forbidden to be eaten. Uh, in terms of fowl, uh, <clears throat> they were permitted to eat chickens, quail, things like that. That's that's permitted, but to eat. Uh, waterfowl was forbidden, so ducks were off limits. Furthermore, they could not eat any kind of meat that appears to have been damaged or that the animal was any way diseased or had a growth on it, anything like that. So uh, you may have heard that kosher food is, first of all, inspected by a rabbi, and a rabbi has to be at a slaughterhouse where the animals are killed to see that they're bled properly and to see that they're healthy animals. And so mm-hmm. if you're eating kosher, it means that your food has been inspected by a rabbi as <clears throat> as the food is being slaughtered or prepared. Um, this, this kind of ruling has made the Jewish people uh, a strict, what I would call, national identity wherever they go. 
So whether they're in Israel or not, no matter where they go in the world, if they're eating kosher, uh, everybody knows they're different, they're set apart. And it's just interesting to me that the rules that were put down in Sinai here over 3,000 years ago resulted in a people, a group of people having a kind of a, a very clear identity of who they were in part because of what they ate and how they ate. Um, like a brand. Yeah, a brand. Yes, very good. Like a very identif- identifiable brand. Um, yeah. And it's still there. Now, obviously, a lot of Jews don't pay attention to the diet rules anymore. They eat pork. Uh, but at the same time, they may come together for a Passover celebration and keep that part of the tradition alive, even if they're not keeping all the kosher rules. On the other hand, the very strict Orthodox Jews will keep the rules and and believe they need to keep them every day. And a lot of these people then live in very tight communities. And if you're going to buy kosher food, uh, you may have to live near the store where you can get it. So it makes sense. So they... They are set apart, just what was said at the beginning here, that you're going to be a kingdom of priests for the nations to see. That's exactly what they're doing. And what are they showing? They're showing that the whole idea of holiness is that you've got to be different from what normal humans are if you're going to be pure enough for God. That's one of one of the lessons that, <clears throat> that comes out from... Uh, from the way the Jewish religion was brought about. I was uh, watching a Jewish comedian on the Internet uh, a few weeks ago, and the story is told by the uh, comedian that a Jewish family moved into a suburban area <coughs> where there were no Jewish schools, and so the family decided to send their son to Catholic school. And the son came home from school and said, you know, I learned today, I learned there are three gods. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And the father in the family says, there are not three gods. You are Jewish, you're not Christian, we have only one God. We believe in only one God, but actually we have one God, but we don't believe that God exists. <laughs> and that's kind of where secular Judaism is now. That is, they look back on the stories of the Exodus and they assume that these are mythologies, that they did not really happen. Uh, but at the same time, they may keep part of the tradition so that they know they're Jewish. So one Wait, strange... can, I, can I pause for a second? So they believe that it's, it's a past event that have, has happened acutely and they're following, just to repeat what you said, uh, tradition rather than uh, many Christians were like, we uh, are here for God as in currently God now. So Jewish faith is looking at the past, whereas Christians are looking at the present. Is that true? Or did I misinterpret that? Or No, I would say both both Christians and Jews look at the past, obviously. Okay. The well, yeah. The Christians are part, don't, aren't part of the Jewish past, at least they don't see it that way. They see the Sinai story as the essence of where the Jews receive their laws, 613 laws to be exact, and you can obey them 
or not obey them, depending on how devoted you are. So that's kind of where it is. But I would say, well, um, John Mack was a UFO researcher from Harvard University. Uh, I spoke at, I think, two different conferences where he was a speaker, too. The last one was in California. We uh, corresponded privately some, but he described himself as a secular Jew, and he didn't believe, for instance, that the parting of the Red Sea ever happened. He felt these were this was mythology that was made up to kind of glorify the Jewish people to say how great they were. Uh, he, did, he didn't buy into the idea of it being a historical event, and uh, he didn't buy into, we'll say, the way I go at it, saying that we should see the modern UFO situation as having been related to the Jewish exodus. So it's it's interesting that some Jews will be very orthodox in the way they interpret uh, the exodus and literal in the way they interpret it, and very some very conservative Christians would likewise be literal in the way they interpret it. Mm -hmm. I'm being quite literal in the way I interpret it, but mm -hmm. I think we misunderstood the nature of the power that did the work of bringing the Exodus about. That is, I think it was what we now call a UFO reality. The question is, then, do the ETs that were associated with the pillar of cloud and fire in doing what I would call this divine theater at Mount Sinai, were they divinely led to do this? Are they a higher form of spiritual reality than we are? And so they were taking a very primitive people and giving them an idea about the invisible God, which that nobody had up to that time, because almost all religion you know, 3,000 years ago was about idols, worshiping idols, things you made with your hands out of gold or silver or wood or stone. Mm -hmm. And so here's, in fact, the next commandment in 20, chapter 20, verse 21. And the people stood afar off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. And the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make yourself gold. An altar of earth you shall make for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. So this is a radical idea that uh, making graven images was wrong because that, that just, you know, that was heresy <laughs> going against the religion mm -hmm. today. So that's, that's the Sinai tradition. Um, they got instructions on building the tabernacle, which was the tent where, which housed uh, the place where sacrifices were made and also housed the uh, Ark of the Covenant. And the tent was collapsible, so they could take it down, move on to a new location, and then put it up again. And so what I want to do right now is read from a section from the book of Numbers, um, which explains what the process of the Exodus was once the tabernacle was built and once um, they were kind of trying to learn the ropes of keeping the commandments that were given, including the priests doing their sacrifices and all that. 
What I'm going to do is read from Numbers chapter 9, verses 15 through 23. On the day that the tabernacle was set up, and the tabernacle, as I said, it seems to be about twice as long as it is wide. And it does have a covering over the top, so it's not a thing where you can look in from above mm-hmm. and see what's going on inside. On the day that the tabernacle was set up, the cloud covered the tabernacle, the tent of testimony, and the evening was over the tabernacle like the appearance of fire until morning. So we've got the pillar of cloud and the fire hovering above the, the tabernacle or the tent. So it was continually the cloud covered it by day and the appearance of fire by night. And wherever the cloud was taken up from over the tent, after that the people of Israel set out. And in the place where the cloud settled down, there the people of Israel encamped. At the command of the Lord, the people of Israel set out, and at the command of the Lord, they encamped. As long as the cloud rested over the tabernacle, they remained in camp. Even on the cloud continued over the tabernacle many days, the people of Israel kept the charge of the Lord and did not set out. Sometimes the cloud was a few days over the tabernacle, and according to the command of the Lord, they remained in camp. Then, according to the command of the Lord, they set out. And sometimes the cloud remained from evening until morning. And when the cloud was taken up in the morning, they set out. Or if it continued for a day and a night, when the cloud was taken up, they set out. Whether it was two days or a month or a longer time that the cloud continued over the tabernacle abiding there, the people of Israel remained in camp and did not set out. But when it was taken up, they set out. At the command of the Lord, they encamped. At the command of the Lord, they set out. They kept the charge of the Lord at the command of the Lord by Moses. So what we have is the pillar cloud um, hovering over the tabernacle day and night, and it is the power that decides when it's time to break camp and move on to some new location. The Christian hymn, Guide Me, O Thou Great Jehovah, the Pilgrim Through This Barren Land, was based on basically this chapter of Numbers, I believe. But in any case, uh, it says that it says, from my point of view, that some type of UFO or spaceship was hovering over the tabernacle during all of the Exodus, and that Moses received its instructions for what to do, almost on a daily basis, uh, from the beings that I assume were in the pillar of cloud. But mm-hmm. the people, by and large, and not even Moses, I think most of the time saw beings in it. Um, so we have a change from Abraham seeing three men to what we have here is a UFO that kind of hides the reality that's in it and the purpose is in fact to teach us to think of God as an invisible power rather than a mm. visible power so I think that's what's going on um, and then we have a verse that, <clears throat> a section that I want to read from Exodus and then we'll move on from from uh, the Bible to Eric von Danik and the Chariots of the Gods. Um, in terms of Exodus chapter 33, beginning at verse 7, I want to read this. Now Moses okay. used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp. Now that's the tabernacle they're talking about. Far mm-hmm. off from the camp. And he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting 
which is outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people rose up, and every man stood at the door, tent door, his tent door, personal tent, and looked after Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the door of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the door of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship, every man at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Now I think if any modern person could be carted back somehow in a time machine and be set out where the tents were of Israel and see the tabernacle mm-hmm. and the pillar of cloud hovering above it and then see it kind of move to the ground, descend to the ground at the door of the tent and Moses coming out and talking to somebody in it, I think most modern people say, ah, oh, there's a UFO, a spaceship, and by golly, Moses is talking to an ET in the spaceship. That's what I think. Uh, now, <clears throat> I realize that religious people won't like this, or some of them won't in any case, but that's my interpretation of what's going on here, and I think the biblical evidence for it is pretty good. The question is, then... Um, where is God in this, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, okay. So, at first I want to say that I just think it's so fascinating. I was just, like, in a trance thinking about what that really would be like, going back in time and, like, seeing what... Because the whole issue is, you know, these people had no idea where, what to even... How to explain events because we didn't have the vocabulary to even know how to explain. So I just, I always think it's interesting looking from that perspective of saying, okay, when we read this out loud, let's, let's say it, let's, let's look at it from our eyeballs from, in this moment, from our, or what we know. Um, I think it just really opens up so many possibilities. But anyway, moving on. So for, when we're talking about ETs and God, um, in the Jewish Exodus, story, it seems like we really take God or the idea of what we think God is out of the equation. So how do you, you know, how do you talk about that? How do you, how do you move forward with that? All right. First of all, I would say that um, I've always believed in God by faith, not by scientific proof. So what it does, it moves the need for faith to a different place. Now I need to have the faith that the ETs, our modern ETs, and those at the Exodus were in fact working on behalf of God, kind of as missionaries for God. You know, Christians have sent missionaries to foreign lands for many years, believing that these missionaries are agents of God, uh, carrying the divine message. Jesus in Matthew's Gospel says, Go you therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. This is a Christian point of view, and I'm a Christian, and so that's my point of view, which is that mm-hmm. uh, Christian missionaries believe they're sent by divine commandment to uh, go and try to make disciples. And my belief is that whoever the modern ETs are, they're better connected to God than we are. They have a better spiritual reality or a better sense of the Holy Spirit than we do. And so they're doing God's work both back 3,000 years ago and also now. 
So that's that's how I do not remove God from the situation. But at the same time, those who want to remove God from the situation in the name of ETs can. And that's kind of exactly what Eric von Daniken did in Chariots of the Gods. Um, in, in chapter 4 of his book, uh, which is titled, Was God an Astronaut? Uh, he goes to the Bible itself. And he goes to the book of Ezekiel, and he tells about Ezekiel's vision of seeing God in a wheel within a wheel, and the being in the wheel within a wheel talks to Ezekiel and all that. And von Daniken goes on to say, you know, the infinite God of the universe doesn't need a spaceship to fly around in, so we shouldn't think for a minute that whoever that being is, that being is God. But he doesn't consider the possibility that he's dealing with an angel of God or a messenger from God. And so uh, people like von Daniken, and I would say pretty much the whole Ancient Alien series on the History Channel, which I was part of, uh, Mm -hmm. tend to take the point of view that if ETs are here now, and if ETs were here 3,000 years ago, they were just a bunch of space guys going around picking up rocks and maybe digging up a few plants to take back to their planet or something like that. And they're basically humans like us, but maybe they've got a faster spaceship, but not necessarily under any better understanding of God or understanding of the purpose of life. Um, What Von Däniken does do is take chapter 19 of the book of Exodus and spend quite a bit of time in it. Now, chapter 19 obviously comes just after the scene I described with Abraham meeting three beings that are understood to be God or represent God. In this case, two beings go to the city of Sodom and meet Lot, who was related to Abraham, and tell him that he's got to leave town in a hurry because God's going to destroy the place. And then, of course, it is destroyed. And the smoke from the city goes up like smoke from a kiln, it says. And Von Daniken speculates that maybe the beings, the ETs, used uh, nuclear weapons to destroy the city. But in any case, he says that, uh, once again, he doesn't like the chosen people idea. Why would God choose to save Lot and his family and blow up everybody else? That doesn't seem like a very fair thing to do. So a real God wouldn't be this unfair. That's the same argument, of course, that Bishop Spong made about God killing off the Egyptians in the Red Sea. But the uh, you know the biblical view of God being having chosen people isn't improved very much if you take the story of the ETs from Von Daniken's point of view blowing up Sodom. They've acted as uh, having the power to choose life and death for some group of people. They chose Lot, (laughs) just as surely as if God had done it. They blew up Sodom, just as surely as God has done it. And so if you want to make the argument that uh, ETs are involved with Sodom rather than God, you still have the problem that the ETs had chosen people. They chose Lot, Mm -hmm. and they chose to destroy uh, Sodom. So then, even if you uh, come to our modern situation, you have to wonder if our modern ETs have preferences 
Uh, do they feel they have the right to uh, perform certain acts on certain people or certain groups of people? And do we want to complain that that's immoral on their part? The uh, same as if it were immoral as a teacher to say, Johnny, you go to the board and do the square root of 375 or something. Um, so we we don't end up um, getting rid of the problem of chosen people just because we decide we're not going to believe in God anymore. Instead, we're going to believe in the ETs because it looks like you end up with the same problem. If the ETs have a will, if the ETs have uh, choices that they make that we may not like, does that mean they're wrong and we're right? <clears throat> um, one of the uh, best-known UFO researchers is Bud Hopkins. He did uh, research into abduction cases. And he was really angry at what he saw as the immorality of the ETs that they thought they had the right to just take a person and take them on board their UFO and put them on a table and examine them and this kind of stuff and maybe even take sperm samples or egg samples. Who do these beings think they are? See, So he had kind of moral outrage. I remember reading in one of the abduction cases where a woman was being examined and she shouted out at the being, you have no right to do this. And the being said back, yes, we do have the right. So part of what we're dealing with here is, is there a higher reality that is looking over planet Earth now? And is it is this reality connected to God or not? And does this reality have the right, the moral right, to do whatever it's doing? And furthermore, are we, in a sense, a property of this reality, whether you want to call it God's reality or the E.T. reality? Because they seem to be acting as if uh, we're their possession. And, of course, uh, that's what I read uh, just a few minutes ago from, from Exodus, where God claimed, all the earth is mine. And so um, the Jews are being chosen to be an example. Wow, you shall be that's just so possession. fascinating. You shall be my own possession among all people, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So, and the other thing is, what kind of a God have we got, assuming this is God? You'd use a process like this, picking out a small group of people 3,000 years ago and expecting them to go to the blackboard for the whole human race and be an example. It's weird, but it's interesting. So that's where it's we very are. interesting. That's where we are for now. Well, thank you, Barry. And... Um, I just think it's every every time it's just it you feel small at least I feel smaller and smaller thinking about, you know, what is who is really in control? Is there somebody that's in control or is there you know, what is that purpose? Uh well, for part of what's going on what, is you know it's a mix of control and freedom. So mm -hmm. in other words, um, the Jews were told what to do, and they were told they would die if they didn't do it, and they were punished. But at the same time, they did have the freedom to disobey. And uh, and so 
I think we're the same way. Uh, the, the Jews are an example for the whole world. The, there are higher laws than what I would call animal laws because I didn't deal with the Ten Commandments. But every one of the Ten Commandments, you know, uh, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Honor your father and mother. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness or lie or deceive or thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's possessions, okay? These are all natural things. We all want to do it, okay? You may not feel you want to kill, but at the same time, most of us reach a point in life where killing actually looks like a good option, you know? We may not do it. But, you know, and throughout the animal world, animals steal, they deceive, they kill, all this kind of stuff. I would say what's built into our DNA is pretty violent. And so the laws of God, the Ten Commandments, forbid us from doing things that lead to violence if we'll pay attention to the commandments. But at the same time, we're free to disobey the commandments. And so there's a lot of killing, a lot of stealing, and a lot of uh, adultery, and a lot of lusting after other people's goods or coveting, you know. So uh, we're, we're watched over, we have a purpose, that seems to be both the message of the modern ETs as well as the book of Exodus. And at the same time, we're free to mess up. So, yep, here we are. Wow. Well, thank you so much, and I'm excited for our next episode. Um, you want to talk about what we're going to be, you know, possibly talking about with our next episode real quick? All right. Well, we're, we're going to move to the New Testament, to the Christian views of E.T. involvement in the development of the Christian religion, uh, how it's similar to the Jewish faith in some ways and yet separates from it in pretty radical ways. So that's all we'll be doing. All right. Well, thank you so much, Barry. Okay, Michaela. Good to hear you.